This is a Saddleback Church podcast. We're starting a new message series on the subject of worship. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the fact that we were designed by God for worship. But I want to begin with a little bit of the genesis of this series, where it comes from. Now, for me personally, it comes from a deeper place than just what I'm about to share with you. But at a practical level, I started thinking about this series in August of this year. In August of this year, if you're here in Southern California, you'll know that Taylor Swift came to Southern California. And when Taylor Swift came to Southern California, I watched people travel across town, across state even, uh, buy new clothes, buy tickets for the concert, and then I watched at the concert young girls, 13, 14, 15, just going for it at Taylor Swift. You saw it all over social media, and uh, it was really, really cool. Now, I would expect, you know, like seeing parents putting pictures of their kids, but what I wouldn't expect is like 45-year-old women acting like teenagers at Taylor Swift concerts. And I was even more surprised when I saw men acting like teenage girls at Taylor Swift concerts. Now, maybe you don't like Taylor Swift, and that's okay. I'm not trying to rip on her. She's incredible incredible musician but there's also other instances where you can see if you go to a concert or for our international audience with the World Cup or Formula One you will watch people as they travel to events and you'll watch them sometimes in a concert with their eyes closed and their hands lifted and you might even think it's a worship service at a church but it's a concert and you're wondering what is it inside of that person that has moved them to this place internally where they're having such a palpable experience at a concert or a Formula One race or the World Cup or God bless American football fans. Like the going crazy, you know, adult men acting like teenage men at football games and had a few too many drinks and they're going crazy. But it's, but it's part of our design that God has given to us that we were made to worship, and I want you to hear this. This is the big idea for the series. I was made for worship. You were designed by God to ascribe worth, to ascribe value, and we do this with our jobs, we, we do this with our time, our energy, we do it with the sports teams that we like, we do it with music, musicians, we buy cars that we collect, we buy jewelry that we collect, some people do shoes that they love, but you were designed by God for worship, and all of what we do as humans is a form of worship. Now, the dictionary, I don't always go to dictionaries for definitions, but sometimes I do. And when I do, I read them. So here we go. So a dictionary definition of worship is to honor or show reverence for as a divine being or a supernatural power. So there's kind of this spiritual implication that they're highlighting. But the second one is to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion, a celebrity worship by fans. So there you see the Taylor Swift example again. Maybe they had just watched a Taylor Swift concert when they wrote this definition. But you see in here this definition of worship that we, we as humans are constantly worshiping. And what I wanna start with on the front end of this series is the reality that we don't always choose to worship the right thing. Often we're giving ourselves to something. We are worshiping that which is first. I want you to write this down. 
not bringing me freedom. So sometimes we are giving ourselves to our careers, to our fame, to, to something that in the end has us in bondage. And this is where a lot of addictions come because someone might pursue something and experience or they might go after something that when they get it, they, they don't get what they thought that they want so they have to keep chasing for the thing that they're trying to get and they're deeper and deeper into bondage, whether it's a relationship or some drug that they're using or some way of living or thinking that that bondage is coming out of a desire for worship, but we're worshiping the wrong thing. So we can worship that which does not bring us freedom. Second thing is that we can worship that which does not satisfy our soul. So deep on the inside, the thing that we're going after, the thing that we're giving our energy to, or our money to, or our whole life to, leaves us empty and broken. It's possible that you could spend your whole life worshiping something, not even being able to call it worship and knowing what worship is, but that thing that you're giving yourself to is leaving you both in bondage and empty afterwards. Jonah, chapter two, verse eight. This verse is important. It says this. This is the prophet in the Old Testament. I'm just extracting one verse from him. He says, those who worship false gods turn their back on all of God's mercies. Now the image here is that it's literally God is over here in his mercy, in his kindness, and when I turn to anything other than God to be in first place in my life, I'm literally turning my back on God. I'm turning my back on the one who gives me joy and satisfaction and freedom. So the journey of understanding worship is really a game of the throne of our hearts. It's what's in first place. Who's gonna get first place? And the final one I want you to write down, this is not the end of the message. I almost said the final point. Like, but it's not the final point. I got a lot more points. So the last one of that list is you can worship that which is not worthy of your life. So you can give of yourself to something. You ever done that with your work? You're like, you worked for that company. You're like, ah, I was better than that company. You ever had that happen? That wasn't worthy of 25 years of my life. Or maybe you were in a relationship and you're like, so long, see you later. You are no longer worthy of my love. And the truth is, when it comes to worship, is that oftentimes we're giving of ourselves, we're worshiping things that are not worthy of our life. So what I want to do today is talk about how do you get back to the one thing, the one who is worthy of everything, your whole life. Now in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church in Rome. And he has some very important words to say about worship. And he says this. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, here in the United States, we don't say proper very much. But in Great Britain, in the United Kingdom, they say proper often. Now proper holds with it kind of a royalty. This is the significant right way to do it. And Paul says there's a true and proper way to worship God. But notice, come back to the top, so he says therefore, so circle if you're taking notes, and I also wanna highlight in front of you your notes if you have them physically, 
you'll see I put all of the passages on one side, and then all the points are on the other side, just to test your wrist strength today. So you're going back and forth. But I don't want you to miss, I wanted to put it that way so that you could walk through it, so you could see all of what we're talking about today in the context of the scripture. So Paul says, therefore. Now, when, when he says, therefore, it's there for a reason. And he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice. Now, also circle true and proper worship. So what we're going to talk about is what is the true and proper worship that Paul is talking about. Contrary to what we've talked about, worshiping things that don't bring us freedom and don't satisfy us and aren't worthy of our lives, what is my true and proper worship? And the first point is that true and proper worship, my true and proper worship, is my response to the living God. It's my response to the living creator of the universe. It's the one who sustains all of creation. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice. It's in view. So remember what I shared from Jonah 2.8. It's like when I turn my life to an idol, I'm turning my back on God. But there's a way of living that comes back into view of who God is and what God is truly like. And I want you to imagine for just a moment, maybe you've had an experience where you've gone somewhere and you, you've seen something that with your eyes it just takes your breath away. Maybe it's a waterfall. One of the places I wanna go is in South America, real close to our Buenos Aires campus. There's a huge, beautiful waterfall where Buenos Aires, Argentina, comes together with Brazil. We're gonna go together, some of the team there, one day we're gonna go. There's a lot of places in the world, though, that when you see them, they take your breath away. And there's one spot here in California. It's called Yosemite Park. And in Yosemite, there's a place called Half Dome. Now, if you've never seen it before, great opportunity to come visit us at all our Saddleback campuses in Southern California. But then when you go to Yosemite, I still remember the first time I was on the floor of Yosemite. It's this big valley. And when you look up and you see Half Dome, and I was just taken away with all the colors and the majesty that no human could create. My eyes were just overwhelmed with the beauty and I stopped. I'm like, that is unbelievable. And what Paul is saying is there's a way to live that brings our life into view with who God is. And when we see him for who he is, it changes us. Now, worship is interesting because there's different facets of it. And we're gonna talk about this throughout the series. And the first one, the, the first word that shows up the most in terms of this kind of response is the word, literally, it means to come toward and kiss. And the Greek word, if you like these kind of things, is called proskuneo. But what it's capturing is this idea of affection. But it's not just affection of any kind, it's the highest form of affection. So it's the kind of affection that one might show towards a king or a queen when they come into their presence. It's the kind of affection, I might say, those of you who have cats don't know what I'm talking about, but it's the kind of affection that a dog might show. Like when you come home, when we came back from our international trip, Mercy, our dog was like, oh, you made it. I never thought I'd see you again. And she's like all over the place, couldn't contain herself. So that's this idea of coming towards and kissing, like it's an affection. 
Now, there's a couple other words that show up. Luke 4, verse 8, Jesus is being tempted by the enemy, and the enemy tells him, hey, if, if you'll do this, then I will make everyone worship you. And Jesus responds, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, there's two words for worship in there, and both of these show up multiple times in the New Testament. And the one serve is what is in Romans chapter 12, and that word serve is basically it means I'm giving God my attention. Kind of like when you go to a restaurant and you have a wonderful server, and that server has their eyes on you, and they're watching, and they're waiting, and they're, if you need some water, I got it. If you, if you need some more food, I got it. And they're attentive to your needs. So the scriptures will translate that as worship. Now the last one also shows up in that verse. It's the first word, you must worship the Lord your God. And it's to magnify and exalt. And it's to adore. So it means I'm putting in this place of adoration. It's, a, it's magnifying and lifting high. It's, it's putting weight on someone or their opinion more than anything else in all the world. And that's the, that's the word that is used when Mary, after she's given the news about baby Jesus coming, she says, my soul magnifies or exalts and my spirit rejoices in my God, my savior. Now wrapping our mind around this concept is so important because it's a totality of my life. So it's my time, it's my energy, it's how I relate to people, it's, it's what I do with all that I am. And that's why Paul, as he's bringing us back, he is bringing us back to a proper understanding of what God is truly like. Because sometimes in, in worship, we have a faulty view of the holiness of God in conjunction with the goodness and the grace of God. And what Paul does in Romans chapter 11, I want you to turn back to these few verses because Paul paints a picture in verse 33. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his path beyond tracing out. Who has ever known the mind of the Lord? And maybe there have been moments that your life, you're like, I think I understand and I got God figured out. And then he doesn't do what you thought he would do. And Paul's saying, try your whole life. You're never fully going to be able to understand the magnitude of all that goes on in the creator's mind. And who has ever been his counselor, like he was ever sitting in a counselor's office paying $100 for therapy. Like he's never needed it. He's never been calling around saying, you know, I just, I, I just can't get, the Father saying, I just can't get along with the Holy Spirit. We're just having a hard time and we need an attorney. No, like that does not happen. He doesn't need a counselor. And who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Like it's, God is not racking up credit card debt. He, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is, he is full in his ability to provide for himself. So God actually does not need our worship, which is kind of puzzling to think about, but he wants worshipers. He wants us to know his heart. And Paul is painting this picture of what God is like. And this last line, he says this, for from him and through him and for him are all things to God be the glory. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your body is a living sacrifice, holy 
pleasing to God. I remember when I was in seminary, I had this professor, I can't even remember his name. And I almost said that shows you how old I am, but I couldn't have remembered his name five years after being out of seminary. I can't remember his name. But I do remember one line he said, and it stopped me in my tracks. And I think about it often. He said, there is an infinite qualitative difference between you and God. Now, I took that and said, between me and God. But the power of that line, there is an infinite, put it back up for just a second. There's an infinite qualitative difference between me and God. I wonder if you believe that. Now, um, this last summer, I had an issue with my car. Had to put it in the shop. I almost had to put it down, but I put it in the shop. And while it was in the shop, I got a rental car. And when I got a rental car, I went to the rental car company. I wanted to go somewhere close by my house. I didn't want to go to the airport and have to wait in lines and all that. So I went and there was only one rental car that I could get while my car was being worked on. So I got up to the countertop and the lady said, hey, there's only one car. And I'm like, what's the car? Right, that's the right question. They said, it's a BMW. And I said, well, there's just one problem with that. I'm a pastor. And if I'm driving around a BMW, everybody's gonna think the pastor drives a BMW. And no judgment if you're a pastor and you drive a BMW, awesome. <laughs> but, but for me, I was like, eh, I can't do that. And she said, well, here's the problem. If, if I don't give you this car, we gotta call another dealership. It's gonna take at least three hours to get the car here. And I'm like, well, I care about my time more than what people think, so give me the BMW. <laughs> now, I care enough to at least tell you what happened so you don't judge me if you saw me on the road in a BMW and thought it was my car back then. But when I got in the car and I drove it, I realized, not infinite, but there is a significant qualitative difference <laughs> between that car and my car. Like, it was not even in the same ballpark, hence the difference in the price. And maybe you've had an experience like that before where you get in a car and you're like, oh, this is a significant qualitative difference. Now, I was sad when I turned the car back in, but, but quality, if you understand, when you get close to something that is significantly different in quality, you, you see it. And there, listen, there is an infinite qualitative difference between us and the creator of the universe. All of his attributes, the holiness that he is seated on a throne with angels worshiping him all day, all night, declaring holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. He's the creator of the universe that with a spoken word created all of creation in six days. He's the one that sustains it and holds it all together. That if one planet were just a little bit off or one part of our DNA were twisted just a little bit, that it changes everything. So he is infinitely, qualitatively different. And then he steps into the story of humanity and becomes one of us. And he walks around for 33 years and he brings people from death to life and does all these miracles where he multiplies little bits of bread and fish, and, and he lives among us, and then at the end of it, he dies on a cross for our sins, and he's placed in a grave. And for three days, it's really quiet, and everybody's like, this was our savior, we thought he was the Messiah, 
But then on the third day, he resurrects and comes back to life. And he is alive right now. And that one who has conquered the grave is the, is the one that when you sing a song, you're worthy of it all. You're singing to the one who defeated death, the one who created and sustains the universe. So when Paul says, in, in, in view of his mercy, oh, he should, uh, my sin, I, sh in, I should be incinerated in a second because of his holiness. But he took all of my sin and he nailed it to a cross. So that when I look over here and I see God, I am not looking through the stain of my sin. But as the scripture says that his blood has taken my red sin and made me white as snow. So I can look in view of his mercy. Let me offer my body as a living sacrifice. So it's my response to who God is and what he's really like. And the more I see him, the more I understand what he's like. I have a deep core conviction that drives me in ministry to, to my core. And one of my deep convictions is I believe that church should be done in a way that no matter where you are in your journey spiritually, you can come with all your brokenness. You're exploring. You don't know anything about this whole God thing. Come and take it at your pace and let God work in your heart. I, I, I believe that and care about it to my core. Saddleback has been that kind of church for 42 plus years, 43 years almost. And the other conviction that we share is that it just takes a moment in the presence of God. Just one moment, God can take the hardest of hearts and make it soft like flesh. And today you might be here, you might be listening to my voice and you have heard these things over and over and over again and your mind, you've thought about it and you've got all your logic happening up, up top and it's never gone from up here to here where with your mind and your heart together, you just stopped. And like at the base of Yosemite, you just went, oh, there's no one like him. And your heart has been made soft. Today, that's gonna happen to somebody. Your heart in the presence of God is going to be made soft today. Now, worship is a response to God's presence. Some of you might be like, I've never had that kind of experience. And the Bible tells us, ask, knock. God, I wanna know you. If you're there, I wanna know you. In Jeremiah, it says, if you seek him with your whole heart, you will find him. And there is nothing in this world that is worth more, that matters more, than your pursuit of the living God. So would you ask him to reveal himself so that you could know him wholeheartedly? He's looking for worshipers. He wants your heart. And not only is it a response, but it's also worship is my ongoing and complete surrender. To him. Now I want to come back to Romans 12.1 because we've been here already, but this is so important. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now what Paul is saying, in the Old Testament they would build altars. And these altars, they would come forth with their lambs and their the rams and their animals, they'd sacrifice them on the altar, and those animals would be burnt as a form of worship. Now this was a part of a lot of different world religions and cultures, and 
that sacrifice oftentimes could be a payment for sin. Sometimes it was a Thanksgiving offering. It might be grain that was burnt. It was on an altar. And that aroma that was coming up that literally was an aroma of worship. So it was an adoration and it was a symbol of a person saying, I need your forgiveness, I wanna know you. But when Jesus came, he went to the altar and was sacrificed for our sin. So what that means is when Paul says, crawl up on the altar, and he's not saying go die on a cross. He's not saying that there, there's some sadistic thing. It is actually this essence of surrendering my whole being back to God. So it's everything I am, my mind, my heart, my money, my time, my relationships, my kids, my marriage. I'm taking it all and I'm putting it onto this metaphorical altar of adoration and praise and saying, God, my whole life belongs to you. But what's interesting is Paul calls it a living sacrifice. So the problem with a living sacrifice is that it has a tendency to crawl off the altar. So you surrender, and then you're like, well, I really want that, and I need this, and I, I don't want God to be first place. I can do it my own way, and then we crawl off the altar. So this ongoing surrender is to come back and to say, God, you have all of me. Now, baptism, in my opinion, is one of the best pictures of this kind of surrender. Because when somebody gets baptized, what happens is you take them, and you say, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life. That's what we do at Saddleback. You go into water and you're immersed by the water and it represents being completely in Christ. It means that my whole life belongs to God. And when I come up, it represents that I have a new life in him, that he's paid the price, I've surrendered to him and I'm forgiven and my whole life is his. Now next week, at all of our campuses, we're gonna have one massive baptism. And we're doing something different. We're moving it into the worship services because we want next weekend to show how baptism is a part of worship. And it's gonna be an incredible celebration. There are some of you, this is your step. It's time for you to go public with your faith in Jesus, like a wedding ring, to let the world know you've surrendered. If you have not taken that step, I wanna encourage you next weekend at Saddleback to take the step at your campus to get baptized. Now, this immersion is symbolic. It shows what God has done in our lives. And I had a funny baptism story, it has nothing to do with my sermon. It came to my mind in the middle of the last sermon and I shared it and people liked it, so I'm gonna share it with you, okay? So, one time, Stacy and I, we were in Texas and we were doing baptisms and our church there was, was very diverse. This is kind of what God used to call us to be a part of a movement that was multiple different ethnicities and nations. So we were baptizing some Indian kids from the country of India. And what I didn't know is in India when they do baptisms, and those of you who are from India, you'll know this, they go forward. So you go forward into the pool and you get baptized. Here in the United States, we go backwards. So I'm doing the baptism with another Indian kid that has led this guy to faith in Jesus, and we're doing the baptisms, and we go forward. I'm a little bit confused. So this guy does not get immersed in the water. Now, I understand baptism. You know, there's some people who are sick, and they, they can't fully be immersed, but I'm a, I'm a believer that there's 
something significant about that immersion that shows being completely in Jesus. So I want the guy to get all wet. I want him to get all wet. So he goes down and like half of his body is still up. But when he comes up, I pick that joker up like this in the air. He w you should have seen his face. It was like, and I took him back down into the water like this. He didn't even know what hit him. And one of my friends who was there says, I guess that's what you call double dipping. So we just want you to go all in. That's what I'm saying, all in. So worship is my complete surrender in an ongoing way to God. Now I wanna finish with a few verses from John chapter 12. And this, I believe, is gonna be the most powerful moment for some of you today. In John chapter 12, I believe that perhaps one of the greatest images of worship in all the New Testament is this passage in John chapter 12. And you may have heard it before. Now, if you're new to faith in Jesus and new to church, I'm so glad that you're here with us today. And when Jesus was doing his ministry and he was traveling and people were coming to him, he'd heal some, he'd show some forgiveness, he, he would change people's lives. And in John chapter 12, there's this really powerful story right before Jesus is about to be crucified and this picture of worship. I want you to imagine this. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So his miracle working power has been shown raising Lazarus from the dead. He is a miracle working God, still working miracles today. So he brings Lazarus to life and now he's there at a dinner that was given in Jesus' honor and Martha served. Now this is the Martha that that Jesus said Martha, Martha to. Like she was, she was a servant, she worked hard, and her sister Mary was there as well. So Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him, the one that had come from death that Jesus had resurrected. Then Mary, now this is what I want you to hear, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet, and she wiped his feet with her hair. Now, many theologians believe that this little bottle of pure nard would have been her dowry that she would have given at the moment of her wedding. So she's literally saying, I'm taking all of my hopes, all of my dreams, my whole future, and I'm pouring it out on the feet of Jesus. And it almost seems so scandalous. It seems so wasteful. Like you, you would take all of this valued perfume and pour it on the feet of Jesus. Now, it says, as she did this, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But it's not just the fragrance of the perfume, it's the fragrance of worship. Because that thing that was poured out was not poured out in vain. What was poured out was poured out in adoration and worship for Jesus. And as it was poured out, I want you to notice here Judas Iscariot one of his disciples who would later betray him objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a whole year's wages. Now Judas really didn't care. Like Judas would immediately after this sell Jesus out for 30 shekels. So he's really, he's really not that concerned. In fact, it says here after this, 
He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, as a keeper of the money bag, and he used it to help himself for Starbucks and a lot of other things to what was put into it. And notice Jesus' words. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now this is a lavish outpouring at the feet of Jesus. And I want you to see this as we conclude one of this beautiful song. Worship is my lavish outpouring of adoration. It's a lavish outpouring of adoration for the one who's worthy. And I just can't help but think as I'm contemplating this message all week, I can't help but think in heaven right now, there's, there's this woman who, she's there around the throne of Jesus and he's crowned with all the fullness of his glory, angels surrounding his throne, declaring his praise. And there, there's no thought about the incense or the, no thought about the nard anymore. Like no, no thought about that perfume. It's, it's like, it's, it's so far, it's a couple thousand years gone. And you've got, in comparison, Judas, who would immediately betray Jesus because he cared more about 30 shekels than the king of kings. And the disparity of value, what strikes me so much as I think about this is the disparity, who got it right? I mean, was it Judas that got the story right? Or was it this woman that understood the full value of who she was with, that the one who has existed for all eternity is now in her presence and all she can think of is just to take this dowry and pour it at the feet of Jesus and this perfume, this scent is rising in the room and Jesus says don't correct her. Like she has made the choice to pour it all out and there's something that happens when you see him for what he's worth. It's like Take, take it all. You want my time, you want, you want my money, you want my thoughts, you want my relationships. Oh Jesus, you, it's, it's, you are the only, it all came from you because it's from you, it's through you, and it ultimately will go back to you. So you, you've got the lavish outpouring of my life. It's, it's yours. And when we see it this way, when our hearts are truly stirred to see the significance and the value of the one that we worship, that's where worship comes from. And everything that seems like a sacrifice is so small when it's put in comparison to what he did for us, the price he paid, that he conquered death, that he gives us forgiveness, that if you're in Christ, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. The presence of God is inside of you. You have the promise of all eternity with him. You've been liberated and freed, and he's given you a new name. He's changed you from the inside out. So worship him. Worship him. He's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy of your worship. So the, the, the team's gonna come now, and they're gonna sing this beautiful song over us, and as they come and they sing this song, I, I just want you to imagine, are you Judas in the room, or are you this woman that is just at the feet of Jesus, just declaring his worth and his value? Try to imagine yourself 
in that room with this woman who poured it out. Oh, Jesus, you are worthy. So worthy of our praise. And we just come today into your presence with a sense of gratitude and thankfulness for what you've done and who you are. And I thank you for these dear people listening to my voice that you love so deeply that you are worthy. You're the only one that's worthy of their lives. And I pray right now that you would capture. I pray there'd be somebody right now that you'd capture their heart with a glimpse of your glory, King Jesus, in your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this weekend message from Saddleback Church. If you like this, please consider leaving a rating or review for this podcast. The Saddleback Church Weekend Message Podcast is a part of the Saddleback family of podcasts. Visit saddleback.com slash podcasts or search for Saddleback Church in your favorite podcasting app to see more great podcasts from Saddleback. For more weekend message resources, visit saddleback.com slash message resources.